sermon series, three-part sermon series. Uh, I've entitled it The Song of Desire. So you can look at one another and raise your eyebrows in that kind of like, oh, what's, what's this all about? Um, it's a book study sermon series on Song of Songs. Now, I need to share with you chapter one of a three-chapter story entitled Trent's uh, First Crush. So you got to yeah, I'm all in for this one. You guys are going to love the next three weeks. So, grade one, it all started. I'm a romantic at heart, grade one. Um, it was a poetry contest where grade one classes would work on poetry and they would compete against each other. This is back when students were encouraged to compete against one another. And so I memorized my, my, my poem and I won for my classroom. And then there was another grade one classroom, and this girl by the name Natasha won for hers. And so the finals was in front of the entire school, and I remember being in grade one standing there, and I do my poem, and then she comes up, and she's like, I, did, I missed the memo. Apparently you can dress up. Seriously. So she's dressed up in this, like, onesie, like, bedtime, cute pink whatever thing, and she's holding a teddy bear, and she does this poem about her sweet teddy bear and how it comforts her when she goes to sleep at night, and it was terrible, and she won, and I fell in love, and simultaneously, she was my enemy. Interesting how that works when you're a child, <laughs> or maybe even as adults. You know, I've played some board games with couples, where they, I, you can tell they love each other, but wow, when it comes to games, they hate each other. Anything but the other person winning. So some of you might understand that. <laughs> um, so yes, part one. So whether, whether it's a word spoken perfectly like that poem that has stolen your heart or not, every one of us at some point or another has come to face to face with these God-given desires and longings for intimacy and connection. Uh, it's part of our human nature to have that intense urge to connect with another human being. Uh, our sexuality is part of who we are. Scripture is filled with this topic, but it is rare for us to ever address it. And I'll admit, I would rather do a sermon series on our prayer life than our sexual lives. Um, but just because it's difficult or awkward uh, does not mean that it's something to be ignored or avoided. Um, it's not really a valid excuse. Um, and culture's not stopping. They're continuing to talk about it. And the longer we choose to not speak on this topic, the further distance and disconnect we have. And we have good news in this area of, of life. And I think it's so important for us to address that. So this short series is going to be dipping into and addressing um, this mysterious, confusing, romantic, passion-filled book. Um, and when I mentioned to my roommates, uh, to one my one roommate, that I was planning to do a sermon series on Song of Songs, these were his exact words and tone. Why would you do that? And I was like, <laughs> oh, um, I didn't even know how to answer him. I was like, yeah, that, that was like kind of aggressive, but actually that was his tone. And I, was a, I paused, it was a good question. Why would I do that? Um, what use would that serve? If you've ever flipped through the pages of Song of Songs, you might appreciate the rebuking question that he asked, why would you do that? Well, 
in the next three weeks, I hope that to some degree we will come to better understand and appreciate this often ignored book in the Bible. Um, I would hope that if someone turned to you and said, why Song of Songs? You might actually be able to answer that question more than, I have no idea. Uh, so that's going to be something that we're going to explore. So part of this sermon is going to be a bit of background and context for the book, so it's a bit of thinking caps put on, but also it's going to connect to the deeper questions of why is this book here and how does this serve us as Christians. So let me pray and then we'll get right into it. Uh, loving Creator, when you finished creating, you looked on this world and declared it to be good. You, you created each of us, uh, with love, care, affection, and purpose. And Lord, we ask that today you help us listen to your holy word. We seek your wisdom. Lord, I seek your wisdom in this. I just pray that you, um, you guide me and that you help, help me say the things that I need to say, that they come from you. Um, Lord, as we get into this text, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would be um, made more aware of your goodness and your plan for us. Amen. So, uh, the first time I read Song of Songs, I'm not sure when it was, but all I remember being was confused. Um, reading, it was like reading the original Hebrew. I was like, what is going on here? Because I had no idea what was going on. The imagery, the metaphors, the other poetic devices went way over my head, thankfully. Um, and I stopped reading it just as quickly as I gave up on reading things like the genealogies in numbers or things like that. Um, but to discard it from our lives because it's difficult or mysterious isn't the best approach. So for this morning, we're going to limit our reading to the first four verses, um, and we're going to allow that to kind of illuminate us, and we're going to ask the question, what am I reading and why does it matter? What am I reading and why does it matter? Um, some books in the Bible lend themselves naturally to preaching. You can just jump right into a book and start preaching from the text. I don't want to do that with Song of Songs because if I jump right into the book and start preaching from the text without the context, it's not going to do the book justice. So that's why we're going to do a little bit of this historic uh, contextual study. So here we have it. Um, and also just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have heard a sermon like done on Song of Songs? Yeah, I, okay, a couple of us. Yeah, I never did, so this is new territory for many of us. So prayers to me, for me, appreciated. Thank you. All right. Um, so uh, let's begin. Let's get into this. Um, songs, one, one to four. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Uh, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And friends say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Yeah, let's stop there. Okay. So there it is, right? Um, you know, so with the spirit of imagery and metaphor, poetic devices, I want us to picture a, uh, a three-legged stool with no legs. So 
a flat circle. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, wow, that's hard to picture. All right, uh, so basically, yeah, it's flat disk on the ground, um, and then it serves no purpose, you know? It's, it's, it has no value. It needs the legs so that you can, like, reach the top shelf, or at least that's why I would use the stool is to reach the top shelf. Um, um, without the, the legs, we have nothing to work with. Um, so we want to have these secure legs of understanding so that when we look at this book, uh, we can look at it with wisdom and with gentleness um, so that even when we do laugh at times, we're also able to appreciate what's going on. So we're going to take some time and we're going to have some building blocks, some legs to this stool so that it's sturdy and has a foundation. So leg number one, authorship and authority. So in verse one, it says, Solomon's Song of Songs. Um, and so many biblical books begin with this address. Of, and so one of the commentators says that we should think of it like a title page of a modern book um, where it provides information and genre. So traditionally, this book is understood to be written by Solomon. But the content itself also uh, has been primarily attributed to Solomon. But the meaning behind Solomon's Song of Songs is not clear-cut. Um, it is just as likely uh, that this meaning, uh, that it means belonging to Solomon or Solomon's collection dedicated to Solomon or written for Solomon as much as it could be written by him. Now, for some of this, this ambiguity of authorship might be disconcerting. Um, but for me, it actually helped greatly um, to ask that question. Does my belief in God's word require a belief that this particular book is written by the man named Solomon? Does it change its value as scripture? And for me, the answer is no. Um, whether it was written by Solomon or it's part of his collection um, or his writings that he's gathered, because he was always known as a procurer of good sayings and wisdom. So he collected things together. Um, in fact, for me, it actually makes it a bit easier for me to see him as not the authority, um, partly because when you look at Solomon's love life, I feel like he doesn't have a lot to share. Um, the amount of concubines and wives he had does not speak to monogamy the way that this book actually does. This book celebrates monogamy. It celebrates one lover with another lover and their union. And so in some ways, I'm kind of okay with the idea that Solomon was like, oh, that's really wise or that's really good information. I'm going to collect this, not so much, I'm going to write this from my plethora of knowledge on monogamy. That, that quite doesn't work. So for me, well, that might not be the case for you. The uncertainty of authorship is not a problem. And scholars agree this is not a problem, um, that there's uncertainty there. Now, when it comes to the question of authority and why read this book, well, we have to recognize that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, Second uh, Timothy. Um, and so all God-breathed, even this book, um, even though this book doesn't even mention God once or any religious activities. Um, it doesn't mention any of that, and yet here we have this book. Um, and so it's understandable why people would question, why is this book even in the Bible? Um, one famous Jewish teacher, uh, a rabbi, he defended the value of the Song of Songs uh, when he claimed that the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel for all the scriptures are holy, but the song of songs 
is the holy of holies. I'm like, wow, how did you get there? I don't know. But you know what? That's okay. That's his perspective. And then we have other perspectives, like John Calvin, um, on the other hand, who remarked about the song um, that it is lascivious and obscene. Um, in which Solomon has described his love affair, and then he goes on and says, it is unworthy of being in the canon. I'm like, okay, thanks, John Calvin. <laughs> Whew, that's intense. Um, there is no doubt that this book has stirred up debates um, as heated and passionate as the poems themselves. Um, for us today, however, our task is not to decide if this book is worthy of our definition of Scripture, but to recognize and trust that God in his wisdom and providence has given us this book as part of his great story. And so if we change our posture and become willing to see God through this entire revelation, we will start to see the beautiful truth nestled inside of this song. So, summary one, the first leg for us um, is to recognize that though authorship is uncertain, that does not change that it has authority and we have to treat it as God's word. So this is scripture and should be treated as such, not a book ignored or put to the side. All right, leg two, genre. This is lyrical love poetry and should be treated as such. So there's all sorts of genres that exist, narrative, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, gospel, epistles, all of these different things. And um, every genre communicates to us in different ways. Um, and so still looking just at the first verse, we see this curious statement where it says, Song of Songs. Now, there are other points in Scripture where we see these two identical kind of words stacked side by side, even in the song we just sang, King of Kings, Holy of Holy, Lord of Lords. Um, these are all different examples of this unique use of, of stacking. Now, this can mean a couple of things. The first in this is that it likely means that this was not a single poem, but this was a multiple poems that were brought together and they were compiled. So it is a song of songs. Now the other element, the second point which I like, is that the song of songs, like things like Holy of Holies or King of Kings, is shown to be the greatest of this. So it is the greatest of all songs. Um, so that's something that I think is really valuable for us to remember. It is the best of the best. It's the best of its kind of this kind of genre of love poetry. Now, the third point for in the Song of Songs thing category is that it tells us, which is kind of obvious, that these are songs. goes without saying, but these are songs. And as we know, songs play a role in our lives that are different than prose, different than narratives. Songs have the ability to bypass certain barriers in our minds and jump right to our hearts. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we continue on. So these are some of the things. And as the title page has stated, this poet jumps straight. Like after he gets into this little line, he jumps straight into, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So this is written by a, or written from the perspective of some young woman. And this is intense. So intense that early rabbinic tradition held that no man was allowed to read this book until he was past the age of 30. <laughs> like, actually. Yeah, to be fair, right? Um, I can, we can appreciate that, I suppose. Um, and so there's this, like, they considered it so sacred 
and so precious that this wasn't something to be cracked open when we're young and, and uh, well, it's supposed to be held onto. It's supposed to be protected and safe. So I thought that was really interesting when I read that. Um, so this is love poetry. There is no hiding the fact um, that this woman strongly desires to be loved and, and embraced by this man, and then later vice versa. Uh, throughout history, this sensual language was too much for the Christian church. They couldn't handle it. They didn't know what to do with it. Because early on, Christianity started to shift away from a balanced, healthy, biblical perspective of the body and sexuality. And they embraced an aesthetic, dualistic view. Now, what do I mean by that? Sorry, I'm using words like that. Um, a dualistic view is that the body and the mind were, they considered to be like separate. They start to think of them as distinct, where the body was seen as naturally unspiritual, and all things that pertain to the body um, were not good and were not good for faith and spirituality. So that was an idea that's just started to emerge. Body, bad, always. Spirit, good, always. Um, and so sex was started to be seen as an unspiritual and even ungodly. Uh, a seminary, seminary friend of mine said once, uh, sex is dirty, save it for the one you love. And I was like, um, is that a joke? I, never mind, okay. Um, but that's the way we sometimes uh, treat it, is it's, it's oh, body stuff. Let's not go there. We don't talk about that. Let's just stick to the safe spiritual stuff. But Christianity has always been about body and spirit and God redeeming both of these things together in unison and in unity. So that's something that's important for us to remember. So um, it's understandable why a lot of us and a lot of throughout history, they took what's called the allegorical view. So do, if any of you have read Paul Bunyan, um, or John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, uh, John Bunyan's, <laughs> Paul Bunyan, was that the guy with the, the blue, the blue, yeah, with blue, the ox? Okay, not him. Um, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, um, where the main character, his name is Christian, and he's on a journey towards the celestial city. This is obviously a like Christian's journey and it's an allegory that we take a story and connect it to our spiritual lives. Now, it's easy to understand why we might do this when reading Song of Songs. Um, the problem with this approach when reading the Song of Songs is that the book itself gives no signals that it is to be read in any other way other than a love song. Allegory does exist within Hebrew scripture, um, but it often comes with a code or a key, a way to interpret and understand what's being said. There is no key, there is no code, there's no lexicon for us to better understand what's being said in Song of Songs as allegory, as some hidden or secret meaning behind the text that reveals something about who God is. Um, a lot of people hold on to that because they don't want to deal with the fact that this is a song about love, about a couple that love each other. And so they, they hide from that. So this approach, uh, when we go that route, is highly subjective. Everyone can have opinions about what anything means, and no one can correct anyone else. And therefore, in community, typically, Song of Songs needs to be approached as a lyrical love poem. Now, God's word is powerful, and it's beautiful in how God is able to speak into our private lives and into our devotional lives in ways that might not corporately. What I mean by that is 
you could take and read Song of Songs, and you could say, Lord, I'm listening to you, and as you read it, you can hear God say things to you and say, yes, I love you this much. And you can hold that dear in your heart and know that since it affirms all of Scripture, that there's truth in that. But it's truth for you in that reading and in that moment. It's not a truth for us to preach as though Song of Songs means this exact thing about how God loves his people. Does that make sense? We have to be really mindful with this kind of book. Um, we can read it in our own devotional lives as something beautiful to nurture our hearts and our soul from the Holy Spirit, but corporately, we need to understand, and it's universally accepted by scholars, that this is love poetry full stop. Um, today, more and more interpreters are willing to read the book as a collection or anthology of love lyrics that capture the joys and sufferings of intimate relationships and sensual love. That's just a quote. Um, so we have that other leg that we need to hold on to. This is, in fact, a love song. Third leg. Um, this love poetry reveals to us God's design for humanity and ultimately his care. We know this. We live in a sex-saturated culture. It is everywhere, and it is being abused on so many levels. But instead of us just shaking our heads at the fact that sexual desire is being used to sell, sell shampoo or fill Super Bowl halftime shows, it is important for us to realize that the marketers might understand humanity more than we realize. They know that sexuality and sensual desire is powerful, that it's strong and that it's hard to ignore. They seem to understand that there is something mysterious and deeply human about it. They have figured this out, and now they're using it for their own profit and for their own gain. And so what do we do? We tend to just say, no, bad, and we just kind of remove ourselves from the conversation. It is easy for us to just condemn their use of all of this. Um, but we have something great to offer. And as we condemn and fight against the sinful use of, of sex in our culture, we have to acknowledge that our desires and all desires in general are real things. It is powerful and it is a gift from God. And it's worth us thinking about and having good, uh, intelligent and heartfelt conversations about this topic. Our emotions, feelings, urges, desires, and longings as human beings seems by nature to be mysterious and elusive. At one moment, our desires might make logical sense and we might be able to fit it in, and then all of a sudden, it makes no sense. And we're like, why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I thinking the way I'm thinking? And sometimes we can be swept up in it and it can be overwhelming. And we've grown up in a world overall, like years and years ago, in that modern era, where we were so adamant to say, I'm a thinking thing. I'm about my thoughts. If I can get my thoughts ordered and my mind right, I'm a thinking thing. That's who I am. That's what it means to be human. Nothing else can think like a human. And to one degree, that is correct. We are these thinking things, that classic statement of Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Um, however, culture and this book point us to something that's a little bit more nuanced than us just being thinking things. This book, Song of Songs, is reminding us of something far deeper and, I, and I dare I say, truer about our human condition. We are thinkers, 
but at a deeper level, we are lovers. And I don't just mean lovers in some sensual sense, but that our, at our very core is a longing and a yearning for intimacy, connection, and relationship. Uh, Christian philosopher James K. Smith, he puts it so well that he says that um, we have been and are creatures of desire long before we are thinking things. This deep reality of our humanity cannot be ignored. And there is good news in this. See, unlike the marketers um, in our culture that just take and abuse and twist, we have books like God's Word. We have the Song of Songs, not like God's Word. We have God's Word. We have the book Song of Songs that connects our desires, our natural, frustrating, confusing desires with God's story. And he's bringing these together and he's speaking into it that at the heart of this story is a love story. The whole book of the Bible is a love story. For our Lord is a God that is about love, he's about relationships and connection and intimacy, and he has created us to be that as well. When we pretend that everything is just up here in the mind, we cut ourselves short of our full humanity, and we disconnect ourselves from our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors. We love, we desire, this song reminds us of this truth and reminds us that God is not unaware of how he created us. This book exists in the Bible. God allowed it to continue from, from generation to generation to tell a story that romance is real and he's okay with it. That sexuality is something for us to talk about. We don't have to just hide it and ignore it and run from it. That monogamous, beautiful love between a man and a woman is a beautiful and true thing. And God has always seen that to be the case. Um, and the poet, they use words like rejoice, delight, praise. It is quite clear that this is all very good, a very good thing. God in his wisdom has spoken through the author of this book to encourage us, as well as warn us, and we'll get into that later in other, uh, in other sermons, about the power of sexuality in our lives. This, uh, this book offers a crucial piece um, this is a book that is unashamed that it declares that sexual union is a beautiful thing. We as Christians need to acknowledge this truth and seek to find ways to communicate this type of sexuality to this world. Um, it declares that we as humans, we feel things, and those things are strong, and they're not to be just ignored or swept under a rug, where in darkness and secrecy and confusion it can so easily be corrupted. And there's more good news to this. When we read Song of Songs as poetry, it gives us permission to bypass our minds for just a moment and speak to our hearts. It can jump past all of this. This song presents us with pictures and feelings that celebrate the intensity of human desire. Song of Songs models the value and beauty, the preciousness and holiness of our sexuality. They show us that a healthy sexual relationship within marriage is possible. This is a celebration of human partnership and an acknowledgement that physical love is not something base or ugly, but a gift from our Creator. Indeed, the very first commandment was go and multiply, be fruitful. And so it's, it's not something for us to be ashamed of, but for something for, to embolden us. And then deeper past all of this, this book 
cries out to us with hints and points us, as all Scripture does, to the gospel. Our longing for love and intimacy, it goes very, very deep. But instead of just talking about it in jokes and whispers or locking it up never to talk about it again, we're able to bring that to Jesus as well. And Jesus is inviting you to take this vulnerable part of your life and let him have it. To let him be the savior of our sexuality and our desires. Jesus is redeeming all things and this is included in it. The good news of Jesus is not that nothing is, is that nothing is beyond redemption. Even the things that we've swept away or that we've ignored, things that we've chosen to not think about. Perhaps today you are sitting here thinking, when it comes to this area of life, I'm a storm of frustrations, fears, longings, lusts, or, selfish, or selfishness. And I just keep trying to deny how very deep and powerful all of this is. I invite you to trust God with it all. Jesus isn't saving you from your body. Jesus desires to heal and restore body and spirit. This book has wisdom for us today. As part of the Bible, we let it teach, instruct, and point us toward God's good purposes. It is a compilation of love songs that reveal to us our longings and desires. It celebrates the inherent beauty and enjoyment of sex. But behind our initial reading, it points us to deeper truths and gives us a glimpse of our humanity as God has designed it. For this book to be in the canon, to be in the Bible, is a testimony to God's investment in this area of life. If you have or are continuing to believe the lie that God doesn't care about this part of your life, I encourage you to, change, to give that to the Lord and say, Lord, help me change my perspective on this. I'm, putting, I'm bringing this part of my life back into a conversation with you. Maybe I've ignored it. Maybe I've kept it locked up. Maybe I've not been willing to go there. But Lord, I'm willing to go there. Your word went there. I'm going to too. And that's hard. That's vulnerable. Um, but I believe, and God's word is clear, that when we crack open our hearts and let God in, he comes and he takes care of us and he nurtures us in our most vulnerable places. And there's no question that in our world and in our private lives, sexuality and the questions of sensuality and all of these things, these are vulnerable things. But God is trustworthy. He is interested and he's not afraid of what you might show him or what you might say. Next week, we're going to explore the life-giving guidelines, warnings, and wisdom as it pertains to how we as a whole community can approach this topic. Uh, but for now, let me pray. Lord, we give this topic to you. And we choose to not avoid it or ignore it. Your scripture is full of accounts and stories that force us to say, Lord, this is a part of life. Lord, you are interested, deeply interested in these vulnerable parts of our lives. We bring them before you today. And Lord, I would just invite that if there's anyone here that if, if you're wrestling with this and you don't know where to go with this, that in these next three weeks that you would begin to open your heart up to that part of your life that God might speak into it 
Lord, speak your love and your care into their hearts. And Lord, in their own private time, I just pray that this book, Song of Songs, could be the allegory that it can be in our personal lives, that you can speak dear love and affection to us. And together, as a whole community, Lord, may we approach this book with care and wisdom and maturity. We love you. In your good name, amen. May you go trusting that our God cares about your sexual lives, your sexuality, and your identity, that he's invested in journeying with you in that, and that we don't have to be afraid of it, we don't have to put it to the corner, and that we can hold it open with care, not with dogmatic, it has to be this way or this way, but just with care, and God deeply loves you. So go with that truth and go in that knowledge. Amen.